keeping any industry, including agriculture, productive and sustainable, involves engaging the younger generation. About a third of all growers in the U.S. are over 65 years of age. Today, we hear from a younger grower in Washington who initially wanted to leave the family farm. He had a change of heart and has since settled in well to this way of life. Welcome to Redox Grows, an in-depth look at key issues affecting agriculture and the people that make it all happen. I'm Jim Morris with Redox Bionutrients in Burley, Idaho, visiting remotely with Andrew Eddy, a second-generation family farmer with RNH Farms in Moses Lake, Washington. Andrew, did I see correctly your high temperature is basically hovering around 100 this week? Yes, sir. It's supposed to be uh, pretty hot, so we feel like we're uh, in the desert of Arizona right now, but we're just in the desert of Washington, so. <laughs> well, I hope that you get a break from that soon. Uh, background on your family operation, you grow forage crops for domestic and export markets. What specific crops do you grow? And tell me about your total acreage, too, if you could. We grow uh, mainly forage crops. We have one field of corn um, that we put up every year just, just because. We grow alfalfa, timothy grass, orchard grass. We also grow on about 1,200 acres, and then we also do quite a bit of custom work um, involving alfalfa and bluegrass straw. How does the custom farming help your overall business? Oh, it helps tremendously. I mean, the thing about it is, is that for growers to put all the inputs in, get everything growing, Go through the whole step-by-step process, water it, fertilize it, grow it, cut it. That takes a lot of a lot of time. So for custom work, you know, we come in and we have a grower that doesn't have the equipment. So we come in, put it up custom, and we try to put it up the best we can and, and go from there. So it just, uh, it's, it's a good fit into our operation where our equipment isn't sitting for um, an extended period of time in between uh, cuttings for ourselves. So pretty much right now, our equipment is rolling pretty much every day. So it keeps uh, keeps our guys busy, keeps cash flow coming through and going from there, especially in, in the current market that we're in, especially with cash flow helps out tremendously. We'll discuss the current market conditions in just a moment, but what is the cost of the equipment? I mean, it's amazing the technology you have, but it does come at a pretty high price. Yeah, cost of equipment is uh, pretty high. Luckily, we've been able to keep things running and um, be the most efficient that we can be. That's the biggest thing is working on production efficiencies and trying to find things that will benefit the fine balance between um, efficiency and kind of uh, reliability for that. So we look at you know our returns on, on equipment purchases and what we're running, how many we're running, um, what it's costing us per acre, per hour, that kind of thing to make sure that we're being as efficient as possible so we can end up, you know, trying to get the most, you know, most money rolling through that we're not just just spending out on parts, fuel, um, and things like that. How do you handle repairs? You're not going to take it to the shop in town, I imagine. And of course, the breakdowns never happen when you want them to, uh, which is never. How do you handle uh, any kind of equipment issues that may arise when you're harvesting or doing other activities? Yeah, I think a majority of repairs we do in-house um, on farm, but there are certain things that we, we do have to go through the dealer for um, just to keep the most uptime and, and, like I said, be efficient and focus on those production numbers. Most end up going just through through us and pretty much anything is, most anything we're familiar with, 
um, on our equipment. You run it enough, you start getting familiar with certain things and what's going to go wrong and what may go wrong, what might not go wrong, um, and what can be improved. So most most repairs are are kind of on us, um, and then the dealer is kind of sporadic for what we got going on, depending on how big of a job it is, how much time we have, and things like that. Alfalfa is cut four times a year, I believe. Walk me through where you're at in the season now that we're into summer and what stages are you going through right now? We finished our second cutting alfalfa here about mm, two weeks ago. Now we're just uh, planning for third cutting, which probably be in about another 10 to 14 days when we start doing that. Just kind of keep, you know, keep cycling through. So we're almost on our third cutting of alfalfa. Uh, we finished our first cutting Timothy and our first cutting orchard grass here about Oh, about a month ago. Um, so we're going to be laying that back down here in the next probably three weeks or so. And then after that, we'll just keep uh, keep rolling on bluegrass straw for now. Alfalfa, go back into second cutting Timothy, second cutting orchard grass, fourth cutting alfalfa, third cutting orchard grass. And then we got a little bit of corn to do in like November, December is the plan. Is there any downtime for you during the year? There's not much. Um, we stay we stay pretty busy. Um, we try to kind of manage time off and things like that, especially for our guys. You know, they're working long hours, long weeks. So we try to try to make it the most beneficial for them as possible. But overall, when the hay's ready to go, the hay's ready to go. So you got to find that weather window and roll when you need to roll. How many employees do you have? Uh, we currently employ four four people plus myself and my dad. We keep on top of it. Um, there's sometimes where we're stretched a little thin, but for the most part, we stay stay pretty consistent and pretty on top of it. How many hours do you work per week on average, you and your dad? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, I've never sat down and put pencil to paper. I work quite a bit. My dad works quite a bit. I mean, I'd probably say on average, we're working 14, 16 hour days, probably every day of the week, if not more, if not you know, sometimes a little less, but it all kind of depends. You have to love what you do to be pulling those many hours. Correct. Ag is cyclical largely. And when you look at hay, I, I've seen a few stories you're quoted in, and I seem to see this word challenging come up a lot. Tell me about how the hay market is and your view of all that. Yeah. So 2022 for um, for the hay market in general was kind of an anomaly year. Prices were super high. Uh, we were heading into um, 2022 with kind of a short on alfalfa supplies or hay supplies. So when spring of 22 rolled around, first crop hit the ground, first cutting Timothy hit the ground, things like that. Everybody was buying it up um, at an absorbent price. The common saying is the cure for high prices is high prices. So rolling into 2023, we knew it was going to be a challenging year. Um, that's kind of the, the buzzword and the tag word of the last couple of years, but it's uh, not much movement is happening. Um, there's not much demand for new crop unless it's kind of the higher end. And even then the price is definitely lower than what it was here um, in probably about 2020, 2019, when we had an average year. It's definitely challenging, especially for mainly forage growers. The biggest thing is cash flow because you put up first cutting and you got to wait 30, 60, 90 days for your money. Um, it's not like corn or wheat, you know, if you haul in a load, you can get a, get a check within, you know, a week or two and, you know, have some cash to work on. Um, for us, it's kind of, Hey, you know, we're going to have first crop rolling in. It may all hit at one time. It may be a couple months, you know, so you're trying to, trying to bring in everything to make it all work. Um, when your cost of growing the crop is, is high, especially for, you know, for forage grasses, it is a very challenging market this year. 
things are not moving as quick as you'd want them to. Uh, hopefully that picks up and starts kind of progressing a little better. We'll see what the next couple months bring here going into winter or um, soon when, you know, supplies start running out. There is a lot of carryover from last year. So we'll see how that all kind of pans out. But hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, you're very young. You'll have many ups and downs, many more of those as the decades go on. So when you have to hold on to your a product and wait to sell it, if there's an oversupply, you have to protect it, right? Because hay can be degraded rather fast if the weather isn't cooperative. Correct. Yeah. So we uh, typically will throw tarps on our on our hay. Uh, we'll do ground cover sides and tops. There's a company that provides that service for us, so we don't even have to mess with it. Just pay the bill, and and that's that. You protect your investment. You pr- protect color. You protect the bottom bales from moisture. Uh, if it's going to sit there for a long for for a while, you mitigate most of your risk to keep it protected and keep it uh, the highest quality that you can uh, you can get. Quick note for you: I commute. Uh, up to my office in Burley, and I see a lot of dairy farms along the way. They have their feed covered up, and one time on a recent trip, I ha- I saw an antelope on top of the cover, so that was pretty cool. I love rural living there. So what's the breakdown between domestic and export markets? What percent stays close? What percent is shipped overseas? You know, it used to be kind of highly, highly export. We'd send a little domestic. I think now we're probably like 90, 90, 10 maybe 85, 15 um, for what we do, mainly mainly still export, but um, supplement with some domestic market sales and things like that to feed stores, um, both here and up in Canada. And then as a whole, I mean, export kind of dominates, dominates the overall market, especially here in Washington. I mean, we have 35 exporters within like, I think like 100 square miles, if not less. So there's there's quite a bit. Export has been a very, very good thing for the hay market up here in the basin. And I think moving forward, it's going to be kind of a, a cyclical thing, just like everything else, is some's going to go to domestic in order to move the product. And then some years it's going to be heavily export because they can move it and use it and be competitive on price. So it all kind of varies on what kind of product you got, what you're going for, if you're small bales, big bales, and kind of those factors. What export markets are we talking about? And tell me about the compressing of the bales to make it work for overseas customers? Typically, um, a lot of the hay from here will go to Japan, Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, UAE, that kind of thing, for various uses, um, from racing horses to camels to milking, you know, milking cows to just a whole wide variety. And the reason that um, export is taking compress it down instead of just shipping straight big bale is they can fit more into a can. It's just easier to feed, things like that. So it's a very interesting process for sure to see, you know, a three foot by four foot by eight foot long bale go into a small little, you know, little double compressed package and um, get shoved in the container and sent overseas. Soft press is kind of becoming a popular thing, especially for the domestic market. So they'll take it and they'll only compress it about 10% of its original, you know, original volume. Um, so they're not taking pressing it super tight, but it's, it flakes a little better. Um, they're starting to push those into feed stores a little bit to kind of see, you know, if people have short on storage space, they can take and put it in a spot rather than doing a bunch of small bales and this and that. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting, uh, process and, um, logistics, um, challenge to get things from, 
the state of Washington to, you know, China, Korea, Japan, that kind of thing. Have you had an opportunity to see your hay at the end destination uh, with these exotic markets? Sounds like a fun road trip if you can pull it off. (laughs) Yeah, no, I haven't had the opportunity yet. Um, I'm sure there will be at some point, um, just with the way everything has happened over the last four years, um, especially has kind of changed, uh, changed that whole scheme. Um, that's on the export side, the domestic side. I mean, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in feed stores and things like that. Nothing to the far extreme of on export side to go, um, go tour over there looking at anything, but that is something that I would like to do at some point, um, when things start to hopefully balance out and get back to quote unquote normal. The challenges for your industry, in a word, are with the three top ones be weather, weather, and weather? Weather plays a big part into what we do um, on both extremes. So whether it's extremely hot or if it starts to rain or anything like that, you don't want uh, you don't want your hay to get rained on. Loses a lot of value, loses a lot of color. Um, nutrients can get washed away. So, you know, the swing for, you know, from good alfalfa to rain on alfalfa could be 30, 40, 50 bucks a ton depending and and those are you know those are real numbers those are pretty pretty you know stout numbers when you start looking at how many tons you got on the ground how much you know you've lost and and this and that so weather weather is a very very big part of uh what we do um i say the other challenges just for the for the industry as a whole is just market volatility pretty much there's no set sanctioning body for the market um it's kind of just set as growers we're price takers not price makers so whatever you know whatever they offer us that's kind of what we're going to take we don't really have too much of a a swing and a say to say hey look you know we need 250 dollars a ton out of it when they're offering 180. we do have a little leeway it's all about the, the art of the deal but at the end of the day we're we're price takers when you do have that opportunity to negotiate a deal, are you the one doing that, and how does that process go? Typically, it's either between me and my dad, uh, depending on what it is, or it's both of us at the same time. Um, the process with that is we just we have a, a set group of buyers that we've worked with in the past um, that we've built you know rapport and relationships with, and they have certain customers that are looking for you know hay of that quality of that you know what we're typically putting up, the amount of tonnage and things like that. So typically we'll just kind of sit down and be like, hey, here's what we got, you know, pull a test on it. Here's what it looks like. You know, can you use it? Can you not? Um, and so we kind of just try to try to bargain out. You know, we know what our break even is on the crop. So we're aware of what we need out of it um, and what we should be getting out of it. Um, so we just kind of, you know, back and forth and be like, hey, look, where where are you thinking your customer needs to be? Where do you need to be? in order to make it work. And, you know, if we come to an agreement, great. If not, and we need to kind of renegotiate, either they'll go back to the table and renegotiate with their customer or, you know, we'll be like, hey, look, you know, um, here's what I got. Here's kind of what I need out of it. I'll take, you know, maybe five, 10 bucks less or, you know, see, you know, see what they have to say. So it's all just kind of a, it's a mutual respect for each other about offering prices and taking prices and negotiating out what, you know, what's going on based not only on this year, but previous years and things like that. You can get greedy, but you end up kind of sitting on hay more often than not. So if you want it moved and sold, you got to make sure you make the best deal possible. How important in your life and in your work are respect and relationships? Oh, respect and relationships are huge. I mean, we've built most of our most of our business on, um, on relationships. So, you know, you sit here and, you know, a lot of people I've, I receive 
many phone calls from people. It was like, oh, hey, how are you doing this? Or, hey, what, you know, what have you done about this? Or, you know, whether that's crop health wise, whether that's um, state establishment, equipment wise, things like that. And even my dad as well, you know, we, we field a lot of phone calls and we're always happy to share. I mean, there's no real secrets that we have. We're always willing to help you know, help people learn and understand more and more about growing crop or marketing crop or things like that. So respect your relationships are huge. And, you know, you, it goes a long way to be respectful and understanding of each other, you know, whether that's between growers and buyers or us and custom people or us and neighbors or us and other farmers. It always goes a long way because um, people will start to be like, oh, hey, look, you know, if you, if you need something, like just just call them or you know, if you have any questions or you need help with this or that, this is probably the person to ask. So it uh, it's huge for, for what we do, and that's kind of what we pride ourselves on. Doing the right thing will help you sleep at night, to be sure. Correct. You're president of the Washington State Hay Growers Association, and people in Washington, they, you think about apples, of course, that's a huge crop, but hay is a big crop as well, about 3 million tons produced each year. What factors are positive in Washington for growing hay? The nice thing about especially the area we're in here in the Columbia Basin um, is we have an abundant supply of water uh, from the Columbia River, comes down from Grand Coulee, um, comes down the, through the irrigation project, and we have um, consistent consistent water. So that makes it very beneficial for what we're doing. But also the other thing is, is that I think forage crops get a bad rap about, you know, sucking water out and taking all the nutrients and just leaching everything and this and that. But actually, if you look at it as a whole, it actually takes and probably does more benefit for the soil and the environment than, than one thinks. Um, You know, everybody kind of hyper focuses on the amount of water it takes and, and all that stuff. But alfalfa fixes its own nitrogen. Um, it's a good crop. Uh, it controls, you know, suppresses weeds, things like that. So, you know, overall, it's a very beneficial crop to have. Getting the most out of your crop, how much do you factor in things like the nutrition for the crop, the health of the roots, the soil, all of those factors, keeping the abiotic stress down? How important are those in getting the best product at the end of the day? Those are huge because the biggest thing about um, the forage market, even alfalfa, but especially um, the grass market is grass is mainly judged on um, the color. Uh, The nutritional value is there, but it's mainly based on color. Um, So if your plant's happy and healthy, it's going to be greener, um, go up a lot greener. So, you know, that's kind of one of the biggest things that we focus on um, plant and soil health using fertilizer and other other things more efficiently in order to grow the best crop at the re- at a reasonable rate and all that. So it's uh it's huge to kind of mitigate your your weather stress and your heat stress and things like that in order to have the best quality of crop you can put up. I want to ask you now about communication. You're an excellent communicator. You've done a lot of different podcasts and media articles. You do a wonderful job as an interview subject. And a little research on the internet, I found out that you have a journalism degree from the University of Oregon. I do. So how was that experience? But And I think that it, you had a bit of a pivot at, at your, that age where you may have considered leaving the farm and then you came back. So let's start with the first part of that, communication. How important is communication? Sharing our story and getting it out there um, in an effective way that people actually understand or look at and, and things like that is huge. And that's kind of one of the things that, that I kind of focus on and take pride in on doing, whether it's branding, whether it's um, communication, whether it's social media, whether it's it's podcasts or things like that, like 
just sharing, sharing information, sharing a story about kind of what we do, not saying it's the end all be all because it's not. Um, we're constantly growing and learning every single day. Communication is huge because if you can't effectively communicate what you're doing or how you're doing it to other people, then what's the point? Like you can't just say, oh yeah, you just go out there and cut it. Well, there's, there's a little more to it. You know, there's a little more to growing it than just, oh yeah, we just water it and that's it. Communication has one of the biggest opportunities. And I think it's, it's getting there about more and more farms or farmers communicating about what they do that makes them unique or, you know, gives them that, uh, the showing of that, that value about, Hey, like why, why does it matter? Like who, who cares? Right. So I think we're doing better and better as a, as a whole, as an industry. And then also just for me is showcasing the benefits of forages where people might not, they're not directly affected by forages, so to speak, because we're not growing, you know, fruits or vegetables or things like that, where it's direct to consumer. Um, it passes through and, you know, if you eat beef, you're welcome, um, you know, eating, uh, growing hay for those, for those cows. And then to, to go on your second point, uh, yes, I did, I did leave the farm. I didn't really see, see what it was like, so to speak, um, had to get out and kind of do my own thing essentially. So I went and had a, a good experience, um, in college, um, got a communication degree and then it came down to kind of, you know, time to, time to get after it. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go back to the farm and see how it goes. And, and so far it's, it's worked out really well. So, um, I enjoy what I do every day. Um, if I didn't, I wouldn't want to work as hard as I do. Having the farming background and the communication background, merging those two together has been super beneficial because there's different ways that I can kind of craft things and show things and know like, hey, look, this is what is going to kind of bring us to the forefront or here's how I can kind of show it or things like that rather than just being kind of, oh, hey, look, here's here's a hayfield or, oh, hey, look, here's this. Like I can build on that more and more with that kind of knowledge and background. And I think there's reason to be encouraged in agricultural communication. People are truly interested in it. If you think about some of the influencers that are out there, Shark Farmer, Millennial Farmer, Shea Myers, there's quite a few growers who've had quite an impact in that area. You're certainly on that list as well. How happy was your dad when you came back? Oh, um, that's tough to tell day to day. I mean, family operations are always kind of one of those um, the sticky situations, I guess, you know, you'll always love them, but some days you hate to work with them. But I say that in, in all kindness and fairness, it's great to be able to work with, uh, with family and even like, even the guys that we have, you know, we, we hope to, you know, have them be felt like family, you know, um, because we're, we're together quite a bit. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to enjoy who you work with and what you're doing and all that stuff. I think he was happy, but uh, like any typical old crotchety farmer, I don't think he's going to admit it anytime soon. So, The Pacific Northwest is certainly a spectacular place, but many people probably haven't traveled to Moses Lake, Washington. What's it like? Oh, probably not willingly. I know a lot of people have passed through it, um, you know, whether it's going to concerts at the Gorge or things like that. Um, a lot of people have been like, oh, yeah, I passed through there. It's good. It's it's small town community. Very heavily focused on ag, but also industry now between Boeing and um, silicone plant, battery plant, like a whole bunch of other stuff that is moving in or is currently here. It's a nice little place to be. When you do get that rare time off, what do you like to do? Uh, sleep. Sleep. That's a, that's about that's about it. Uh, <laughs> I typically like wintertime. Um, I like to travel. 
uh, go to other ag education events or things like that, hang out with my kids. Yeah, it's just uh, it kind of varies day to day. But other than that, I mean, just just relaxed time and kind of trying to separate from, you know, from the farm is, is the biggest thing. So as a responsible forage grower, and you've already talked about the connection between your crop and a lot of food that we like to eat, you really do need to do your homework and sample some of the uh, end result of your crop. So uh, ice cream comes into play, I imagine. you have any favorite flavors there? Oh, man, you got to go with like just the regular chocolate chip cookie dough or peanut butter chocolate chip cookie dough because those are probably probably the best. You always got to sample ice cream. It's, there's, no, there's no turning it down. Oh, absolutely. And just for research only, to be sure, I had Rocky Road last night. My wife adores Cherry Garcia, and our son has a bowl of ice cream, well, let's just say more than once a week. <laughs> so we're doing our part. That's right. Sounds like the lifestyle is worth it for you. Tell me how positive at the end of the day you feel about agriculture and, and the decision that you made coming back from the university. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a good decision every day. You know, the hours are long, but the thing about farming is is you can see the progress every single day, especially with a with a forage crop. And you start in the spring, it starts growing up. You know, you take your first cutting off, it goes all the way down to nothing, and then it comes back. You know, thirty thirty five days later, and and you're cutting it again. So um, there's a lot there's a lot to mess up in a short amount of time, but there's also a lot to go right in a short amount of time. It's just kind of constantly finding that balance of like, hey, I need to I need to put this on, or I need to add some more water. Or my fertilizer program's a little lacking. Let's add a little bit in. You know, the plant's not happy. What can I do to fix it? You know, it's just, it's a constant process. And every single day, especially with like harvesting wise, you know, you, you cut it, you rake it, you bale it and put it in the stack. And it's, it's all just a very like interesting process. Um, and you can see progress each and every day um, on what you're doing. So that's a huge huge benefit at the end of the day to be like, Hey, look, you know, I got, I got a lot done today, or I got 300 acres done today, or I got 20 acres done today. It's a fine place to be, you know, some days, some days vary on what you're doing. Um, anything from fixing pivots to fixing equipment to, you know, managing employees to running around like crazy, um, checking fertilizer tanks, running water. But I think at the end of the day, it is very rewarding to see, um, see good crop go in the stack, get that sold and moved out and just keep, keep kind of the train rolling. Well, as Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And I really do appreciate your positive attitude and also your time. Thank you, Andrew. For sure. Not a problem. That will wrap up this episode. Thank you to Andrew Eddy of RNH Farms in Moses Lake, Washington, for his time and comments. You can reach us at podcast at redoxgrows.com. We'd love to hear from you. Comments, stories, suggestions moving forward. And you can go to redoxgrows.com for so much more information, including about our products, blogs, and all of the podcast episodes. Thanks for listening. 